0: Chapter eighteen of the Strenuous Life This Librivox recording is in the public domain read by Bob Newfeld. The Strenuous Life by Theodore Roosevelt Chapter eighteen The Labor Question Address at the Chicago Labor Day Picnic, september third, nineteen hundred By far the biggest problem the most far-reaching in its stupendous importance, is that problem, or rather that group of problems, which we have grown to speak up as the labor question. It must always be a peculiar privilege for any thoughtful public man to address a body of men predominantly composed of wage-workers, for the foundation of our whole social structure rests upon the material and moral well-being, the intelligence, the foresight, the sanity the sense of duty and the wholesome patriotism of the wage worker this is doubly the case now for in addition to each man's individual action you have learned the great lesson of acting in combination it would be impossible to overestimate the far-reaching influences of and on the whole the amount of good done through your associations. in addressing you The one thing that I wish to avoid is any mere glittering generality, any mere high-sounding phraseology, and, above all, any appeal whatsoever made in a demagogic spirit, or in a spirit of mere emotionalism. When we come to dealing with our social-industrial needs, remedies, rights, and wrongs, a ton of oratory is not worth an ounce of hard-headed, kindly common sense the fundamental law of healthy political life in this great republic is that each man shall indeed and not merely in word be treated strictly on his worth as a man that each shall do full justice to his fellow and return shall exact full justice for him each group of men has its special interests and yet the higher the broader and deeper interests are those which apply to all men alike for the spirit of brotherhood in american citizenship when rightly understood and rightly applied is more important than aught else let us scrupulously guard the specific interests of the wage worker the farmer the manufacturer and the merchant giving to each man his due and also seeing that he does not wrong his fellows but let us keep ever clearly before our minds the great fact that where the deepest cords are touched The interests of all are alike, and must be guarded alike. We must beware of any attempt to make hatred in any form the basis of action. Most emphatically, each of us needs to stand up for his own rights. All men and all groups of men are bound to retain their self-respect, and demanding this same respect from others to see that they are not injured and that they have secured to them the fullest liberty of thought and action but to feed fat a grudge against others while it may or may not harm them is sure in the long run to do infinitely greater harm to the man himself the more a healthy american sees of his fellow americans the greater grows his conviction that our chief troubles come from mutual misunderstanding from failure to appreciate one another's point of view. In other words, the great need is fellow-feeling, sympathy, brotherhood, and all this naturally comes by association. It is therefore of vital importance that there should be such association. The most serious disadvantage in city life is the tendency of each man to keep isolated in his own little set. And to look upon the vast majority of his fellow-citizens indifferently, or that he soon comes to forget that they have the same red blood, the same loves and hates, the same likes and dislikes, the same desire for good, and the same perpetual tendency, ever needing to be checked and corrected, to lapse from good into evil. If only our people can be thrown together, where they act on a common ground with the same motives and have the same objects we need not have much fear of their failing to acquire a general respect for one another and with such respect there must finally come fair play for all the first time i ever labored alongside of and got thrown into intimate companionship with men who were mighty men of their hands was in the cattle country of the northwest i soon grew to have an immense liking and respect for my associates and as i knew them and did not know similar workers in other parts of the country it seemed to me that the ranch owner was a great deal better than any eastern business-man and that a cow-puncher stood on a corresponding altitude compared with any of his brethren in the east well after a little while i got thrown into close relations with the farmers and it did not take long before i had moved them up alongside of my beloved cowmen and i made up my mind that they really formed the backbone of the land then because of certain circumstances i was thrown into intimate contact with railroad men and i gradually came to the conclusion that these railroad men were about the finest citizens there were anywhere around then in the course of some official work i was thrown into a close contact with a number of the carpenters blacksmiths and men in the building trades that is skilled mechanics of a high order and it was not long before i had them on the same pedestal with the others by that time it began to dawn on me that the difference was not in the men but in my own point of view and that if any man is thrown into close contact with any large body of our fellow-citizens it is apt to be with a man's own fault if he does not grow to feel for them a very hearty regard and moreover grow to understand that on the great questions that lie at the root of human well-being he and they feel alike our prime need as a nation is that every american should understand and work with his fellow-citizens getting into touch with them so that by actual contact he may learn that fundamentally he and they had the same interests needs and aspirations of course different sections of the community have different needs the gravest questions that are before us the questions that are for all time affect us all alike but there are separate needs that affect separate groups of men just as there are separate needs that affect each individual man it is just as unwise to forget the one fact as it is to forget the other the specialization of our modern industrial life its high development and complex character means a corresponding specialization in needs and interests while we should so long as we can safely do so give to each individual the largest possible liberty a liberty which necessarily includes initiative and responsibility yet we must not hesitate to interfere whenever it is clearly seen that harm comes from excessive individualism we cannot afford to be empirical one way or the other In the country districts the surroundings are such that a man can usually work out his own fate by himself to the best advantage in our cities or where men congregate in masses it is often necessary to work in combination that is through associations and here it is that we can see the great good confirmed by the labor organizations by trade unions of course if managed unwisely The very power of such a union or organization makes it capable of doing much harm. But on the whole, it would be hard to overestimate the good these organizations have done in the past, and still harder to estimate the good they can do in the future, if handled with resolution, forethought, honesty, and sanity. It is not possible to lay down a hard and fast rule, logically perfect, as to when the state shall interfere and when the individual must be left unhampered and unhelped we have exactly the same right to regulate the conditions of life and work in factories and tenement houses that we have to regulate fire escapes and the like in other houses in certain communities the existence of a thoroughly efficient department of factory inspection is just as essential as the establishment of a fire department How far we shall go in regulating the hours of labor, or the abilities of employers, is a matter of expediency, and each case must be determined on its own merits, exactly as it is a matter of expediency to determine what so-called public utilities the community shall itself own, and which ones it shall leave to private or corporate ownership, securing to itself merely the right to regulate. sometimes one course is expedient sometimes the other in my own state during the last half dozen years we have made a number of notable strides in labor legislation and with very few exceptions the laws have worked well this is of course partly because we have not tried to do too much and have proceeded cautiously feeling our way and while always advancing yet taking each step in advance only when we were satisfied that the step already taken was in the right direction to invite reaction by unregulated zeal is never wise and is sometimes fatal in new york our action has been along two lines in the first place we determined that as an employer of labor the state should set a good example to other employers We do not intend to permit the people's money to be squandered, or to tolerate any work that is not the best. But we think that, while rigidly insisting upon good work, we should see that there is fair play in return. Accordingly, we have adopted an eight-hour law for the state employees and for our contractors who do state work, and we have also adopted a law requiring that the fair market rate of wages shall be given. I am glad to say that both measures have so far on the whole worked well of course there have been individual difficulties mostly where the work is intermittent as for instance among lock tenders on the canals where it is very difficult to define what eight hours work means but on the whole the rest has been good the practical experiment of working men for eight hours has been advantageous to the state poor work is always dear whether poorly paid or not and good work is always well worth having and as a mere question of expediency aside even from the question of humanity we find that we can obtain the best work by paying fair wages and permitting the work to go on only for a reasonable time the other side of our labor legislation has been that affecting the wage-workers who do not work for the state Here we have acted in three different ways, through the Bureau of Labor Statistics, through the Board of Mediation and Arbitration, and through the Department of Factory Inspection. During the last two years, the Board of Mediation and Arbitration have been especially successful. Not only have they succeeded in settling many strikes after they have started, but they have succeeded in preventing a much larger number of strikes before they got fairly under Where possible, it is always better to mediate before the strike begins, than to try to arbitrate when the fight is on and both sides have grown stubborn and bitter. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has done more than merely gather the statistics, for by keeping in close touch with all the leading labor interests, it has kept them informed on countless matters that were really of vital concern to them. Incidentally, one pleasing feature of the work of this bureau has been the steady upward tendency shown during the last four years both in amount of wages received and in the quantity and steadiness of employment no other man has benefited so much as the wage-worker by the growth in prosperity during these years the factory inspection department deals chiefly of course with conditions in great cities One very important phase of its work during the last two years has been the enforcement of the anti-sweatshop law, which is primarily designed to do away with the tenement-house factory. The conditions of life in some of the congested tenement-house districts, notably in New York City, had become such as to demand action by the state. As with other reforms, in order to make it stable and permanent, it had to be gradual, It proceeded by evolution, not revolution, but progress has been steady, and wherever needed it has been radical. Much remains to be done, but the condition of the dwellers in the congested districts has been markedly improved, to the great benefit not only of themselves, but of the whole community. A word on the general question. In the first place, in addressing an audience like this, i do not have to say that the law of life is work and that work in itself so far from being a hardship is a great blessing provided always it is carried on under conditions which preserve a man's self-respect and which allow him to develop his own character and rear his children so that he and they as well as the whole community of which he and they are a part may steadily move onward and upward the idler rich or poor is at best a useless and is generally a noxious member of the community to whom much has been given from him much is rightfully expected and a heavy burden of responsibility rests upon the man of means to justify by his actions the social conditions which have rendered it possible for him or his forefathers to accumulate and to keep the property he enjoys He is not to be excused if he does not render full measure of service to the state and to the community at large. There are many ways in which this service can be rendered, in art, in literature, in philanthropy, as a statesman, as a soldier. But in some way he is in honor bound to render it, so that benefit may accrue to his brethren who have been less favored by fortune than he has been. In short, he must work, and work not only for himself, but for others. If he does not work, he fails not only in his duty to the rest of the community, but he fails signally in his duty to himself. There is no need of envying the idle. Ordinarily we can afford to treat them with impatient contempt, for when they fail to do their duty, They fail to get from life the highest and keenest pleasure that life can give. To do our duty, that is the summing up of the whole matter. We must do our duty by ourselves, and we must do our duty by our neighbors. Every good citizen, whatever his condition, owes his first service to those who are nearest to him, who are dependent upon him, to his wife and his children next he owes his duty to his fellow-citizens and this duty he must perform both to his individual neighbor and to the state which is simply a form of expression for all his neighbors combined he must keep his self-respect and exact the respect of others it is eminently wise and proper to strive for such leisure in our lives as will give a chance for self-improvement but woe to the man who seeks or trains up his children to seek idleness instead of the chance to do good work. No worse wrong can be done by a man to his children than to teach them to go through life endeavoring to shirk difficulties, instead of meeting them and overcoming them. You men here in the West have built up this country not by seeking to avoid work, but by doing it well, not by flinching from every difficulty, but by triumphing over each as it arose, and making out of it a stepping-stone to further triumph. We must all learn two lessons, the lesson of self-help, and the lesson of giving help to, and receiving help from, our brother. There is not a man of us who does not sometimes slip, who does not sometimes need a helping hand, and woe to him who, when the chance comes, fails to stretch out that helping hand yet though each man can and ought thus to be helped at times he is lost beyond redemption if he becomes so dependent upon outside help that he feels his own exertions are secondary any man at times will stumble and it is then our duty to lift him up and set him on his feet again but no man can be permanently carried for if he expects to be carried he shows that he is not worth carrying before us loom industrial problems vast in their importance and their complexity the last half-century has been one of extraordinary social and industrial development the changes have been far-reaching some of them for good and some of them for evil it is not given to the wisest of us to see into the future with absolute clearness no man can be certain that he has found the entire solution of this infinitely great and intricate problem and yet each man of us if he would do his duty must strive manfully so far as in him lies to help bring about that solution it is not as yet possible to say what shall be the exact limit of influence allowed the state or what limit shall be set to that right of individual initiative so dear to the hearts of the american people all we can say is that the need has been shown, on the one hand, for action by the people, in their collective capacity through the state, in many matters, that in other matters much can be done by associations of different groups of individuals, as in trade unions and similar organizations, and that in other matters it remains now, as true as ever, that final success will be for the man who trusts in the struggle only to his cool head and that in other matters it remains now as true as ever that final success will be for the man who trusts in the struggle only to his cool head his brave heart and his strong right arm there are spheres in which the state can properly act and spheres in which a free field must be given to individual initiative though the conditions of life have grown so puzzling in their complexity though the changes have been so vast yet we may remain absolutely sure of one thing, that now, as ever in the past, and as it ever will be in the future, there can be no substitute for the elemental virtues, for the elemental qualities to which we allude when we speak of man as not only a good man, but as emphatically a man. We can build up the standard of individual citizenship and individual well-being, We can raise the national standard and make it what it can and shall be made only by each of us steadfastly keeping in mind that there can be no substitute for the world-old humdrum commonplace qualities of truth justice and courage thrift industry common sense and genuine sympathy with and fellow-feeling for others the nation is the aggregate of the individuals composing it and each individual American ever raises the nation higher, when he so conducts himself as to wrong no man, to suffer no wrong from others, and to show both his sturdy capacity for self-help, and his readiness to extend a helping hand to the neighbor sinking under a burden too heavy for him to bear. The one fact which all of us need to keep steadfastly before our eyes is the need that performance should square with promise, if good work is to be done, whether in the industrial or in the political world. Nothing does more to promote mental dishonesty and moral insincerity than the habit either of promising the impossible, or of demanding the performance of the impossible, or finally of failing to keep a promise that has been made. And it makes not the slightest difference whether it is a promise made on the stump or off the stump. Remember that there are two sides to the wrong thus committed. There is first the wrong of failing to keep a promise made, and in the next place there is the wrong of demanding the impossible, and therefore forcing or permitting weak or unscrupulous men to make a promise which they either know or should know cannot be kept. No small part of our troubles in dealing with many of the gravest social questions, such as the so-called labor question, the trust question, and others like them, arises from these two attitudes. We can do a great deal when we undertake soberly to do the possible. When we undertake the impossible, we too often fail to do anything at all. The success of the law for the taxation of franchises recently enacted in New York State, a measure which has resulted in putting upon the assessment books nearly two hundred million dollars worth of property which had theretofore escaped taxation is an illustration of how much can be accomplished when effort is made along sane and sober lines with care not to promise the impossible but to make performance square with promise and with insistence on the fact that honesty is never one-sided and that in dealing with corporations it is necessary both to do to them and to exact from them full and complete justice the success of this effort made in a resolute but also a temperate and reasonable spirit shows what can be done when such a problem is approached in a sound and healthy manner it offers a striking contrast to the complete breakdown of the species of crude and violent anti-trust legislation which has been so often attempted, and which has always failed, because of its very crudeness and violence, to make any impression upon the real and dangerous evils which have excited such just popular resentment. I thank you for listening to me. I have come here to-day not to preach to you, but partly to tell you how these matters look and seem to me, and partly to set forth certain facts which seemed to me to show the essential community that there is among all of us who strive in good faith to do our duty as american citizens no man can do his duty who does not work and the work may take many different shapes mental and physical but of this you can rest assured that this work can be done well for the nation only when each of us approaches his separate task not only with the determination to do it, but with the knowledge that his fellow, when he in his turn does his task, has fundamentally the same rights and the same duties, and that while each of us must work for himself, yet each must also work for the common welfare of all. On the whole, we shall all go up or go down together. Some may go up and go down further than others but disregarding special exceptions the rule is that we must all share in common something of whatever adversity or whatever prosperity is in store for the nation as a whole in the long run each section of the community will rise or fall as the community rises or falls if hard times come to the nation whether as the result of natural causes or because they are invited by our own folly All of us will suffer. Certain of us will suffer more, and others less. But all will suffer somewhat. If, on the other hand, under providence, our own energy and good sense make prosperity to us, all will share in that prosperity. We will not all share alike, but something each one of us will get. Let us strive to make the conditions of life such that, as nearly as possible, Each man shall receive the share to which he is honestly entitled, and no more. And let us remember, at the same time, that our efforts must be to build up, rather than to strike down, and that we can best help ourselves, not at the expense of others, but by heartily working with them for the common good of each and all. End of chapter 18